Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Judd Apatow has one of the most impressive comedy resumes of anyone, anywhere. His Apatow Productions has produced and developed the television series Freaks and Geeks, Undeclared, Girls, Love, and Crashing. He's directed the hit movies The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, This Is 40, and Trainwreck. And he's produced another dozen smash comedies on film since the late 1990s. Before that, he wrote and produced on The Ben Stiller Show and The Larry Sanders Show. Before that, he infamously interviewed famous comedians while still in high school in the mid-1980s. As he approaches 50, though, Apatow has returned to his comedy roots, and he's filming his first stand-up comedy special for Netflix, which he's recording at Just for Laughs in Montreal. I sat down with him as he made his final preparations for that, so let's get to it! All right, so Judd Apatow, since um, we don't have a lot of time, yes. let's just get right into it. Yes. You knew from an early age that you wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. That was your, your goal. That was the yes. dream. What was the calculus then to go to USC film school? I just wanted to go to a school that had a major as close to stand-up comedy as I could find. And screenwriting was just as close to stand-up comedy as I could think of. But I really had no dreams at all of screenwriting. <laughs> Zero. I just didn't know what else to major in, and I had no mentor to say, oh, just study English. Right. Just, and so I just didn't know. I didn't know what to do. And so uh, I went there. I was 17 years old, way too young to be there. I had no really good ideas, no vision for myself. Had you done stand-up on stage yet? I just started like three months before I went to school. Okay. And... I was doing it at the East Side Comedy Club and Governors and Chuckles back then. And I got paid for the first time literally the week before I left for college. They asked me to host an open mic night, and they paid me 50 bucks. At which club? At East Side Comedy okay. Club. Which so bummed me out because I thought, oh, my God, I'm already getting paid. <laughs> uh, but in retrospect, I learned some things there. But I, I was a little too young to know how to use college wisely. But you picked L.A. instead of New York City. I couldn't afford to go to NYU. I got into NYU. I couldn't afford it. But then okay. I don't know why I went to USC. I think in my brain I thought it was more expensive than NYU. I was so stupid. <laughs> I mean, back then we didn't even visit colleges. You wouldn't go on a college tour like kids do now. I never went to USC. I saw it for the first time the day I got there. I never visited NYU. They were all concepts in my mind. They were brochures. Right. And probably I could have just gone to NYU. And it would have cost the same. But I just had some bizarre thought, like, it's expensive to live in the city. I didn't even realize there were dorms, that they were probably cheaper than USC's dorms. Like, nothing I did make sense. Right. And in 1985, 86, New York City wasn't quite as expensive as it is now. Who knows? It was all a miscalculation. <laughs> but it worked out. It, it all worked out. You have well, to... You have to you got to make lemons out of lemonade. Well, how long after you enrolled at USC did you start matriculating into the clubs there. I had met Jamie Masada at the Laugh Factory. I had written a couple of articles for a magazine he was putting out, Laugh oh, Factory great. magazine. And so when I came to town, I showed up hoping to do stand-up there. And uh, I got on a little bit, but not mm-hmm. in a real way. And then 
Uh, Not even for doing those articles? The articles didn't pay off. And I was terrible. I was terrible. I should not have been on that stage. But I started booking a club for Sammy Shore called Sammy's by the Shore, which was in the back of a fish restaurant Mm -hmm. in Marina Del Rey. And so I would book the shows. I didn't really get paid much, but he would let me go on as much as I wanted. And so that's really how I got started was by booking Sammy's club and emceeing. And then I would go do one-nighters around California for 50 bucks or 75 bucks. And then eventually when I thought I was doing okay, I auditioned for Bud Friedman of the Improv. And I think I didn't get in the first time and then I got in the second time. So how long of a process was that to get in? I think I, I, I got to L.A. in the fall of 85, and I got into the improv three years later. Okay. That's not too bad. Yeah, that's actually, looking back, not too bad at all. And at that time, were the clubs pretty hard and fast about not playing the other clubs, or what was it like? Yeah, you could not play the Comedy Store. I never auditioned at the Comedy Store. I maybe only went over there a couple of times when I was really young. I just was scared. Was it extra scary because you were working for Sammy and... No, not at all. It was and just, Mitzi was running the store? Just, you didn't know who your ally was over there. You know, you go to certain clubs and there's a manager who's nice. Like at the improv, there was this guy, Joe Drew, who managed the improv in the Valley. They had mm-hmm. one in a Hilton Hotel in the Valley. And he would always chuck me on when someone didn't show up. And I couldn't figure out who to talk to at the comedy store. And Mitzi was a terrifying concept. <laughs> I never even met her. Uh, and you wouldn't talk to Kinnison. <laughs> I actually would talk to Kinnison because he, he used to play some of the weird clubs in the Valley, like okay. the L.A. Cabaret. And it was very nice. But I just didn't know how to navigate the idea of the comedy store. Was Les Moonves at the Improv when you were there? Oh, no, no. He was long long gone <laughs> from those days. I think he was an executive at Fox for a while. And I think that's when I met him for the okay. first time, possibly. When did you meet Adam Sandler for the first time? I met him at the comic strip in the late 80s. And then he moved to L.A. because Bud Friedman said if he moved to L.A., he would give him spots. And then Adam just moved to L.A., and Bud gave him spots. And he was really young and charismatic. Was that before you or after you? A couple of years before me. Okay. And he was on remote control on MTV and was VJing a little bit. So Adam had a little buzz around him at that time. Uh, and, and, And maybe four grand in the bank. Did you guys move in together immediately? or No, he lived with a bunch of friends. And at some point, I think he might have gotten tired of them not paying rent or something. And then we moved in together. Who were you living with before? My grandma. Oh. <laughs> well, that was kind of your hookup when you were a teenager, too, right? That's how you were able to be out in L.A. and show up at Steve Martin's door and all that? My grandma lived in Beverly Hills with my mom. And so I dropped out of USC after a year and a half because I didn't really have money and... I knew my family couldn't afford it, and and so I had been living with my mom and my grandma, and then at some point, uh, I moved in with Adam. Were you still going to USC at that point, or had you dropped out? I was out. How long did you last at USC? A year and a half. What made you finally make that decision? I just ran out of money, and I won the dating game. There was a new version of the dating game, and... The trip to Acapulco was at the same time as finals. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to be here any longer anyway. So I just dropped <laughs> out and went to Acapulco. How was Acapulco? I got sunburned the first day. <laughs> How was your date? She did not care for me. 
Had you picked her or she picked you? She picked me and was very disappointed. Wow. Because I made it very clear that I was blonde and blue-eyed and she did not appreciate my lie. <laughs> That's unfortunate. It was, it was. But uh, yeah, then I just started doing one-nighters and I was working at Comic Relief. And I think maybe I was making $200 a week putting together benefits around the country for the homeless for Comic Relief. Was that like as a production assistant, producer? What was your... I was just kind of like a low-level office staffer Mm -hmm. with the responsibility of trying to convince clubs to give the door away to Comic Relief once or twice a year. uh, Well, Comic Relief was a big deal then, so was it hard to do that? I wasn't really affiliated with the show that much. I was kind of a PA around the office. But they would let me call every club in the country and try to convince them to do benefits. And I raised about a million dollars over the course of three or four years for the homeless. That's, so that was very That's fun. real money. But I didn't get near the creative. I got to watch some rehearsals and things mm-hmm. like that. Because you were still a few years away from getting the Young Comedian special. Yeah, that was in 92. So, yeah. So four years after I got into the improv, I got that. And then I stopped. to <laughs> Right. That's. I mean, that's. That's kind of what I. You know, I want to focus on on Judd Apatow, the stand-up comedian. Yeah. So, those four years from '88 to '92, did you work the road also, or were you just mainly hitting as I many spots in Southern California? Bit. A little bit. I would do some of the road improvs. I would go to Texas, and I would go to Tempe. There was a great improv in Tempe in Chicago. Yeah. I did some gigs opening up for Jim Carrey at like the Atlanta Punchline and Cobb's. But not a ton. And then every time I, they started booking me, I would get a writing gig and I wouldn't be able to do the road. And then I felt bad canceling all the time. And then when the Ben Stiller show got picked up, I was just really busy working on the show. And then I had to cancel all my road work for the year. And, and then I didn't have time to even go to the improv to work on new jokes. So I just let it slip away. But you had a network show, so. I had a network writing job. And I was making a lot more money than I was making on the road. Right. That the improv, I mean, it was real money. And so I thought, well, I guess I'm supposed to do this. I'm really doing a much, much, I'm doing like making 30 times more money than I am at stand-up. Was it, was it hard that first year to separate yourself from stand-up? Or because you were with such a great crew on the Stiller show that it wasn't... You... I think I was a little burnt out on the whole idea of stand-up. I had been such a fanatic for about 17 years. Right. And, I might have been getting a little bored of the form and frustrated with my inability to be truly great at it. And I thought I was doing more interesting things writing sketches. I thought my work was better writing for other people or working with Ben Stiller. Was that just being classic, you know, somebody who's being hard on themselves? Or do you think it's because you had studied so much stand-up that you kind of knew where the benchmarks were and whether you were... One of the greats that you interviewed. I I was a fan, and I I just knew people were better than me, and I didn't like it. I didn't like being (laughs) mediocre. (laughs) Although, getting that young comedian special, that's supposed to be like... It was a big deal. That was one of my only goals in comedy, was to get the young comedian special. It's really weird they don't do it anymore, because it was a really big deal back then. Ray Romano was on it, Andy Kindler, Bill Bellamy, Nick DiPaolo, and Janine Garofalo, and... Dana Carvey hosted it. And yeah, it's one it of the all-time classic lineups. It was very exciting, but I was not strong. That night when you looked around the room, did you 
did you have that sense even before you performed? Or or did you think, oh... I had a, I had a good time. One of, us, I was is, one already, of us is going to be a star and one of us is not. And I was already shooting the Ben Stiller show when it we shot it. We were, we were like heavy in production. So that and probably thought, takes the pressure off then. Well, I felt a little bummed that I couldn't take advantage of it. Like, oh, I'm so busy doing this... TV show, it's not like I can try to make something out of this. Mm-hmm. So there was nothing much to do because I couldn't go on the road. I couldn't focus on writing stand up jokes. Right. Because the Ben Stiller show, we were working 16, 17 hours a day. And it was really all consuming. I never had a job like that where that was every second of your waking hours. I just didn't have that before. Right. The, the experience you had before was comic relief and. I wrote some specials for people like Roseanne and Tom Arnold and Dennis Miller and produced some specials, but nothing like running a sketch show. Right. I mean, it was really exhausting. We were shooting all short films, so it wasn't live. It wasn't with an audience. We were just shooting like heavy production, you know, for 18, you know... You know, 15, 16 hours a day, and then we would go do sound mixes afterwards or write at the end of the day. It was very, very difficult. Was it a show where you had done all the episodes before the first one aired, or how many had you done when the first one aired? Three. You know, like it was, we were, we were behind and, and reinventing the wheel with every sketch. We didn't have recurring sketches. We didn't even know how to run this format. We didn't know how to use our money well. Some shows we would spend all the money on one expensive sketch and then do everything else dirt cheap. Was there any any TV veteran there to guide all you young bucks? Brian Gordon helped on the pilot. Mm-hmm. It was a great director. And, and, uh, and there was a writer named Bruce Kirschbaum, who was a writer who had been on Seinfeld. But basically none of us knew what we were doing. And production-wise, it was very, very difficult. To do, I think since then people have figured out how to do sketch shows the way Amy and Key and Peel have, but we did not know how. Well, the technology was also different too. So you're, yeah, we were shooting on film. Yeah, it was, it was time consuming. So yeah, the shooting of it, the editing of it, it's yeah. all. And this is much bigger. This is before the Avid. This is before digital editing. So they would edit on tapes, and every time you made an edit, they would like re-record it on tape. So by the time you were done, like you had recorded over the same tape a zillion times, and the sketch you could barely see it. It was just a very weird, hard process. So when that show got critical acclaim and awards, but then got abruptly canceled, did you think about going back to stand up then? Um, I didn't. What was your thought process? I was working that? at the Larry Sanders show. Gary offered me a job. Mm-hmm. And then I worked two days a week at The Critic, this animated show that James Brooks and Reese and Gene made. And I thought, oh, this is my education. I'm going to do these. I split my week between the two shows, consulting. And uh, that's when I was like, learning how to write, basically. So this was the rest of your USC film school? This was the real film school, <laughs> yeah. But except it was under Gary Shaling and James Brooks. Not the guy who wrote Mannequin 2, who was my writer. My writing teacher at USC. Now, you had worked... In what capacity had you worked with Gary before Larry Sanders? I wrote the Grammys a few times. Had you wor- had you written for an award show before the Grammys? No. And I didn't even... 
I don't even think I was that helpful, but I was really good at explaining the premise of jokes. So I knew what Gary should be joking about, but I never could crack the punchline. But I could write his setups, and then he would think of a way better punchline. And were you following music of the? I was. So Gary was not. <laughs> so I could go. Gary Tina Turner is popular again, mm-hmm. and this is the name of her album, <laughs> and it's funny because of this. And then we would like figure it out. And then private dance can mean this, and it can mean that. I mean, it was like Eric Clapton. Peter Gabriel. Oh, right. Back then, you know, early Red Hot Chili Peppers, En Vogue, Billy Idol, Rock the Cradle of Love was one of the songs. So you just jumped in with, I mean, people talk about your films, but the early TV work is kind of unparalleled when people talk about great, great TV comedies and sketch shows. To go from Ben Stiller to Larry Sanders and The Critic. Yeah, yeah, I was very lucky to meet Ben, who had a real vision for filmic sketches. And that became very popular decades later at, at Saturday Night Live. Ben was at Saturday Night Live in the early 90s, and he wanted to do that there, and they right. wouldn't let him. So he quit. He was it, only on like four or five right. episodes. And ended up doing it himself. And then he did guys. it on MTV, and then he did it on Fox. On Fox, and... And uh, and and a bunch of our writers and Bob and Dave left when the sh- you know when the show was canceled and did uh, Bob and Dave show Mr. Show. show. And I think Ben was very influential to the idea of really well crafted cinematic comedy shorts. For you though, like going to work for Gary, I know you're working on a documentary about him, so. Mm-hmm. You've been thinking about him a lot over the last couple sure, of years. Yeah. What what sticks with you the most about what you learned from him? Uh, he was in a, 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 a search for truth. He wanted people to reveal themselves. He wanted people to be present. He wanted to get to the core of people. And that's what mattered to him. He didn't want any bullshit. He didn't want surfacey material. He would just say, what would you do? What would you really be thinking? What would actually be happening? And those questions sound kind of obvious, but when you watch bad comedy or thin comedy, it's because it's not has no depth to it. And it's just silly, but he wanted to really explore human beings and their behavior. And that's something that I try to do in everything I do, and that's what I pe- preach to people when I'm producing. Well, I was going to say that that has been kind of the, the overarching theme of your work in both yeah. TV and film. Yeah. But- Oh, this is what real people would do in these situations. Yeah. Whether it's always funny or not is not the point. Yeah. It's real. Yes. Yeah, that's what I that's what we're going for. Did that make it more comforting for you to move behind the camera as a writer, producer, director? I wasn't even trying desperately to do it. Uh, but uh, I I was uh, you know, in my office one day and Gary just said, "Do you want to direct?" You know, one of the last episodes. And it was all Gary's instinct to have me direct. Because I never asked him to direct. I would never go, let me direct you and Rip Torn and Jeffrey Tambor. I never (laughs) thought that I knew more than them. So why would I ever ask to direct? But Gary, you know, had an instinct that I would be good at it. So that was the nicest thing he ever could have done to me. Did you know after directing that 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 was going to be a focal point for you? Moving forward? Uh, I thought that 
I, I was glad he pushed me to do it because I had a good time and I thought mm-hmm. I did a good job and it gave me the confidence to do more. So when we worked on Freaks and Geeks, I pushed to direct. I think I did four episodes. Right. And that's where I learned a lot. And then I directed a bunch of undeclareds. And, and after all that, I felt more confident about filmmaking in general. And then um, felt more confidence about pushing to direct a movie. So by the time you got to Funny People, mm-hmm. you got Adam to get back mm-hmm. on stage and mm-hmm. do stand-up. Yeah. You got Seth on stage. Doing, you got everybody on stage yeah. doing stand-up. Did you... I got up a, Think a about bunch getting of, up then? I did. I got up a bunch of times, but I was writing jokes for their acts. Right. So I wasn't writing anything personal. I was writing jokes that their characters would tell. Right. And did you write any Randy jokes? <laughs> no, because Randy <laughs> jokes were basically repurposed jokes of Aziz's that he just performed over the top. And I think it bothered him, the, the huge laughs he was getting right. when he did it in the worst possible way. When he was just in your face, way too big and broad. And, and and he saw, oh, you get bigger laughs when you do that. I always felt like it bummed him out to oh, learn that. I definitely remember the year the year that Funny People came out and the year after that. He would have to do a 20-minute chunk of Randy in his headlining set. Yeah. Because the people demanded it. Yeah. So people loved like, oh. it. They loved the satire of the big loud comedian, and I mean those sets where he would only do Randy mm-hmm. were incredible. It was it was such a funny idea. Um, I have to run next door. Okay, but I will be back. Okay, so you were writing jokes for all the the other comedians and funny people, yes. and you were doing some of them on stage yourself. Yes, but you didn't catch the bug to come back then. Well, who knows? Maybe that was the first seed of it. After that, a couple of years later, I started going to UCB and doing an hour alone on stage in a show I was calling Learn How to Make Thousands of Dollars in the World of Comedy. (laughs) And I would bring people on stage, Uh and they would pitch me their movies. Oh, and I would give them notes on their movies. Okay. But the movie pitches were always insane. And so it was funny just because I'd say, anyone who wants to come on stage... So it was legit. It wasn't a, a scripted where uh, no, you no. had plants, like Paul Shear would come up with an oh, idea. Oh, no, or... I didn't need plants because people's script ideas are generally terrible. <laughs> and then, then if it happened to be good, it would be weirdly hilarious that anyone had a good idea. So none of those got made? None of those were made. Okay. But it wasn't until Trainwreck that you actually caught the bug. What was the difference for you then that it didn't catch in 2009, but it caught in 2014, 2015? I think it was partially because I started working with Amy, and Amy was telling me about the road, and then she would just reference different comedians, and every once in a while she would say, oh, you should look at this tape, this is this guy Pete Davidson, or you should look at this tape of, of, of this funny person. And I realized I didn't know anybody that I hadn't paid any attention to what was happening in stand-up comedy. Even and, even while doing Funny People? Yeah, I just didn't really go to shows. I didn't watch a lot of stand-up specials. And I, I think for the first time I started enjoying stand-up again. Okay. I think in the, the, in the years in between, 
I, I remember going to see Chris Rock live, and that was exciting. And but I really wasn't familiar with a lot of the people who were very successful. And I actually think listening to Mark Marin sparked my interest because I knew Mark from when I was a stand-up in the right. '90s, and and hearing all the stories, and and then I started getting to know people through these interviews, and that woke me up. And then I started seeing Amy do stand-up. And I came to the Comedy Cellar with her. Right. And Here at the Boisterous and Comedy I, Cellar. And I love the whole vibe of it. And I thought, oh, I miss hanging out with comedians. I haven't really been hanging out with comedians. How long did it take hanging out with the comedians here at the Cellar before you either got talked into going on stage or you talked yourself into going on stage? I said to Amy shortly before we started shooting Trainwreck, I'm going to write an act just to show you what it was like when I did it, just to make you laugh. Right. And I said, send me some premises and I'll write jokes. And then his... Uh, well, basically what happened is she started sending me premises and her sister Kim started sending me premises. And I wrote 10 minutes of jokes and I put together some old stories I had told on talk shows. And one night I went up on, at the Comedy Cellar and I had a good set. And, and she was so annoyed. She really wanted to see me bomb. <laughs> and then they said, you want to go up again? And I went up again, and Esty saw me. Right. And she said, hey, anytime you want to come in, just come in, we'll put you up. Now, no one ever treated me that well when I was in comedy the first time. Bud wasn't like that? Bud, Getting spots from Bud? Well, Bud was like that, but it took a long time. And I was never good enough to just show up, mm -hmm. but just as a result of having uh, accomplished a few things, uh, <laughs> they thought it was enough of a freak show to let me on, Yeah, and uh, and then I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this every night, the entire shoot of Trainwreck, because I could tell it was making me sharper, and I think a lot of people get very rusty, and uh, they lose their sense of what's funny, and it's good to talk directly to the crowd. It's good to have a relationship with the world. And I committed to it and said, I'm going to do this. And then after a little while, I said, you know what? I'm really going to do this, and I'm not going to stop. Was it also was it making you just sharper as a stand-up or also sharper when you went back the next day for production on the movie as a I director? Think, I think I was funnier on the set. I was funnier pitching jokes to the actors and actresses. Right. To go, LeBron, why don't you try this? I just It put me in a good mood. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed getting to know everybody. And I like the fact that people didn't know what the hell I was doing, and it would take real effort to deserve to be up there. And as a, someone who loves comedy, it was a great challenge to 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 have to go on after Louie or Amy <laughs> or Dice Clay and have the audience feel like there wasn't a lull in the show. Right? Like, can I, you know, be solid? So it just feels like the show continues. So then you get to play Carnegie Hall in 2015. Yes. yes. Judd Apatow and Friends as part of the New York Comedy Festival. Yes. Was that was that something that you had pictured when you were a kid in Syosset going, one day I'm going to play Carnegie Hall just like Andy Kaufman did? Never for a minute would I have ever thought that was possible. That, to the point where I wouldn't have dreamed it. And when they asked me, I was nervous about it. <laughs> Uh, but, but it was Judd Apatow and Friends, so you didn't have to carry the whole weight of it. Well, at that point, I had been doing stand-up 
for, I don't know, 16, 17 months. And I just worked hard to uh, have the set. Mm -hmm. And I had Mike Birbiglia open up. And then, partially because I was nervous about it, I brought on Adam Sandler as a special guest after me. (laughs) I really didn't know if I could close the show. And I think I did well enough that I could have just ended there and it would have been fine. But when Adam came on, he got such bigger laughs than me. I, I was like, wow. They were so excited to see him. They paid to see me, but they applauded much louder for him when he came out on stage. And then, But we sang a song together. And right. It really was a magical night. So now two years later, you've still got the bug to the point where you're going to do a Netflix special. Yeah, and I've never uh, done an hour. Uh, and so... It's really scary, and it's scary to put together an hour you really can stand behind. But it, I it, really enjoyed doing the work. Is this a completely new hour from what I saw you doing a couple of years ago? No. Okay. But, <laughs> you know, it's the, yeah, I just keep working to make it better, and maybe... Well, this is still know. your first hour. Yeah, so uh, what I did at Carnegie Hall, maybe it's... 20, 25 minutes of that hour right. the has survived. Stuff. Yeah. And I've been uh, going on the road. I'm going to the improv and, you know, Boston and Connecticut and Rhode Island to prepare. And I, I feel like it's uh, almost there. I mean, I'm a big fan of comedy, so it's very hard for me to think this is as good as anybody because well, I really respect what Maria Bamford does or. Hannibal Burris says, and it's very hard for me to judge because I've always had a voice in my head that was very critical uh, of myself. But I'm getting there where I feel pretty good. Well, that was the voice in your head that told you to stop. Yeah, and, and, and it's a voice I always have to quiet down. But I'm having a good time, and I, I think uh, I'm as ready as I can be for this moment. What else do you think is different about 2017 Judd Apatow as a comedian versus 1987? Judd Apatow. Well, when you're young, you don't have anything to talk about except high school and your one year at college. Right. You don't have a lot of opinions. You don't have a lot of stories. So, it's, you know, I was probably just figuring out how to be a comedian when I stopped. Although I was, I was talking to, to Wayne Fetterman, who's, who's touring with you and co-producing this special, yes. and he said that even that 1987 Judd was great at conceptualizing bits. I was a pretty good writer. I mean, I which I guess makes sense because, as a writer and producer and director, you knew how to how to frame a story well, a bit into funny, a routine. I wrote some funny, uh, you know, pieces and jokes for people like Jim Carrey and R- Roseanne, but it was easier to do because I wasn't the one who had to face the audience and whether or not it would bomb. And so I had a lot of confidence to hand jokes to people, Mm -hmm. but they're the best performers in the world. And so uh, it's it's very different. I remember I wrote a speech with Jim for the AFI tribute to Steven Spielberg. And he just ripped the roof off of the place. And I just thought, I'm never going to be that good. Uh, But it's a great... It's a, it's a great opportunity now to see what is possible, and I, I really love doing it. So we'll we'll see how how it goes. Maybe my Netflix special will be, will be eleven minutes long. 
hey, if it's 11 killer minutes, that's not a bad thing. 11 minutes, and then I'll shoot a 38-minute sketch to fill it out. Do you feel like you're a stronger, more confident stand-up now than you were 30 years ago? Even even with the break? I mean, honestly, in my mind, maybe terrible is too strong a word, but I, I, I was not very good. There were some people who thought I was good. Adam Sandler was always very supportive of my stand-up. Well, you were helping pay the rent. Yeah, he he, he always got a kick out of what I was doing on stage. Mm -hmm. But when I look at old tapes, I want to dig a hole and jump in. So what? uh, I always like to close with with trying to get some advice and inspiration from my guests. What would you tell my listeners who who know they should be in comedy somehow, but don't really know where they fit in yet. As, as someone yeah. who's, who's taken a kind of meandering path yes. from stand-up into behind the scenes and now back to stand-up. Well, it takes a while to find your voice, but I think in this era where it's not expensive to do it, you should just start making things and figure out what you do. You could perform live, you could do improv, you could make short films, which now doesn't cost any money. You could do it on your phone. <laughs> Neil Brennan was... <laughs> explaining how easy it is to use iMovie. He makes these really funny Instagram videos. And he's like, it's the easiest thing in the world. So if you're funny, you just got to start making stuff and just seeing what it evolves into. And if you care about it, you won't quit if you're passionate. You'll find a way to make some money, and you'll learn, and it takes a while to figure out who you are. Uh, but if you love it, uh, you can do it. Well, as one comedy lover to another, I thank you for your time. Well, thank you. Thanks, Judge. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.